1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Jonathan Allen, who's co-author with Amy Parnes of Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign. Jonathan Allen writes a weekly political column for Roll Call, and the head of content for Sidewire And this is the second collaboration and the first was also about Hillary Clinton. When did that come out?
0: That came out in February of 2014. It was a review of her time at the State Department and some reporting on how she was building to run her 2016 campaign.
1: As the campaign unfolded and as you were taking your notes for Shattered, did you see a pattern that had gone into the back of your mind about Hillary Clinton during the first book?
0: She, as somebody who was in government, I think got a lot higher marks from the public and I think got a lot higher marks from the people around her for her ability to work in the executive branch. People around her were concerned that if she got back on the campaign trail, the public would have less affinity for her, that her popularity ratings would fall. And we saw that happen. So there was something that we were sort of expecting to see which is that the sky-high stratospheric approval ratings that she had as Secretary of State, which reached as high as two-thirds of the American public, would come crashing back down to earth a little bit. I don't think we realized how far she was going to drop in that calculation.
1: When you were working on the first book, were you aware of the campaign speeches
0: to Wall Street? During the first book, I'm trying to think of the timing. I think We were aware she was going to be doing, in fact, we wrote this in the first book, that her plan going out of the State Department was something that was shorthanded as beaches and speeches, meaning some vacation time and some paid speeches. So we were aware that that was her plan walking out of state and that she would be doing that between the time she was at state and the time she she ran for president. Were you aware that she was going to run for president? The conclusion of the book was essentially that she was already running for president, and the question was whether she would stop rather than whether she would start.
1: So you kind of knew this. So was it ever in the back of your mind that running for president and going for multi-hundred-thousand-dollar speeches was probably not the smartest thing she could do?
0: I think it's always something that people who do private speaking in and around public service get hit for. She's not the first person to have her private speeches brought up in a campaign. The degree to which it hurt her is, I think, something that's a little bit new. It certainly surprised her. (laughs) You know, look, I'm not a political operative, but I do think that you could foresee this being something of a problem. Maybe not foresee it being as big as it was, but it is odd not only to me and my co-author but certainly to some of the people we talked to who are close to her, that she would take that risk.
1: Before we move into some of the specific areas of why and how she lost, which of course is what most of the people listening (laughs) or reading the book want to know about, a couple of other things that happened before. One was the Clinton Foundation. Now, the Clinton Foundation is mentioned and shouted a few times you don't go into any detail, I guess, assuming the readers understand exactly what it was and what her involvement in, in it was. I never quite got it either from the campaign. I knew it was a bad thing because the newspaper said, but exactly what she was doing that would come back to haunt her.
0: So Amy and I, in our first book, actually detailed a lot of the relationships between Hillary Clinton's sort of official arm, you know, which her State Department staff or as a campaign, a lot of those people went to the campaign, the relationship between her world and Bill Clinton's world, which is the Clinton Foundation world, and uh, they ultimately ended up merging for a while uh, when she joined the foundation. What we wrote about in the first book was that, or at least one of the interesting revelations, was the degree to which Clinton Foundation donors became donors to a project that she cared about at the State Department a lot, which was the U.S. Pavilion at the Shanghai Expo or World Fair in 2010, I believe. Basically, you could find the donors to that World's Fair and take a list of the Clinton Foundation donors. And there was a nice overlap, and we did a lot of reporting. We found out that they were, in fact, calling the same people, and she had hired a bunch of people who were longtime Clinton fundraisers to do that fundraising. So the question is, what's the problem? The answer is that there's real concern that if somebody's going to become president of the United States and they are taking money for a foundation, that that will influence them. It seems funny to say that because we see what's gone on with President Trump and his yeah, exactly. his sort of Teflon when it comes to any sort of conflict of interest allegations. But you know that was something she got hit on uh, on the campaign trail. We didn't think it was as important to the story in terms of the things that hurt her as a lot of the other issues. In part because I don't think the public cares as much, and I think that's one of the things we've seen with the Trump Foundation that the public just doesn't care that much about uh, whether that somebody's accessing or getting access to a a politician based on their foundation.
1: Well, I mean, with the public doesn't seem to give it a care or at least a large portion that this is a man who you wouldn't want to be in the same room with, but that's another story. <laughs> so, the Clinton Foundation, one final question about the Clinton Foundation. Was that little red flag going up in either of your heads going, if she's running for president, will this come back to haunt her?
0: Absolutely. And, in fact, we had done the reporting in the first book and, and pointed out that there were some issues there. But even separate from that, outside of the books, we'd done some reporting. I'd written for Bloomberg at the time about some of the confluences of interest, if you will, or conflicts of interest, if you won't, <laughs> uh, that arose from those relationships that she had. And, and really um, tons of donors who gave to the Clinton Foundation and lobbied the State Department while Hillary Clinton was at the State Department? I mean, there's a and, and then included in that, there's even a, a, another circle in the Venn diagram, which is people who gave money to one or both Clintons to speak privately, so personal money as well. I, I definitely looked at that as something that could be a problem for her. So I don't think it broke out individually as a problem, but I think it was part of the narrative of Donald Trump calling her crooked Hillary and Bernie Sanders saying she, essentially that she was corrupt. The third element before she ran is the private server in the State Department. Did you folks know about it? We didn't know about the private server. Nobody, it seems, knew about it until about March 2015 except for her close in circle. We were aware that there were some private Clinton email addresses, but that... That's not so unusual, like that Huma Abedin might have a personal address that's connected to a Clinton server. The issue was that she didn't have a State Department email address and that everything that they did was exclusively done. When I say she, I mean Hillary Clinton. Uh, Everything was exclusive to this server. That's sort of the original sin, if you will. I don't mean it as a value judgment, just in terms of tracing back. That was the big thing that shadowed the campaign the entire time. Then going back to that,
1: And you actually asked the question, what was she thinking? I'm sure she didn't tell you, but somebody in her campaign must have given you some idea of why she did this?
0: The thing she had always said was she did it as a matter of convenience. She didn't want to have to carry multiple devices, which is hard to pass the smell test since Huma Abedin actually carries her devices and carried multiple devices for her. Exactly. So why did she really do it? Yeah. The most obvious answer to that question, I think, and the one that seems to have the most resonance is that she didn't want people to be able to pick through her emails Because if you work at the State Department as Secretary of State, your uh, correspondence is subject to Freedom of Information Act requests, which reporters will file. And this backfired on her greatly as we've now read all of her emails or all the ones that were recoverable. One of the things that feeds that that we reported in this book, Shattered, is that after her 2008 campaign, she instructed one of her aides to download the emails of other top aides on her campaign so she could look through them and see what went wrong on her own campaign, see what was going on at headquarters, who was leaking, who was stabbing each other in the back. This is a Yale Law School graduate who has had almost everything she's written or said over the last 25 years thrown back in her face. The idea that she doesn't understand how information systems work or Freedom of Information Act requests work seems ridiculous to me. I mean, we're all complex people, and...
1: Certainly, there's a lot of things we all do that don't make any sense. Uh, The idea of thinking that basket of deplorables, which in Shattered, you highlight as a key element of basically consolidating
0: Trump's base. She didn't have to say it. Think about it this way. She said half of the people who are voting for Donald Trump are deplorable, what she said, are, are in a basket of deplorables. Well, if you're in a, a Trump household where there are four people you know, who are voting, you go, you look around and you go, all right, well, is, is she talking about me or is she talking about my wife or is she talking about my kids or, or my brother or my sister? And then she kind of walked it back and said, I, I shouldn't have said half. The truth is she shouldn't have talked about American people like that, particularly as she was running a campaign on a on a slogan of stronger together. It was at odds with what she said she was doing. A couple of points here. In reading Shattered, yeah,
1: there's a lot of dissension, discussion within the Clinton campaign, but we also know that the Trump people were far more worse, both as people and as the way they interact with each other. We know that all campaigns, the Romney campaign, virtually every campaign going back is going to have these kinds of dissensions. It didn't seem to me in reading the book that it was all that unusual. The only thing unusual was that she lost.
0: Well, I think in terms of the campaign dysfunction, there are... There are parts of it that matter more to the story of her losing and parts of it that matter a little bit less to the story of her losing. I would just say that Amy, my co-author, and I are Washington reporters, and a lot of this stuff in there was not reported during the campaign, and there were interesting elements of that. Some of them, I think, played more into issues that they had. Look, there was no streamlined authority within the campaign, right? So that's a problem. There were people at the junior and middle level that were unable to get answers to who was in charge.
1: But, but is that all that unusual? is what I'm saying. I mean, putting aside the success of, say, the 2008 Obama campaign or the 92 Clinton campaign, is it all that unusual for these kinds of lines of communication to be kind of screwed up and for one set of people talking to another set of people? You built a case here that it was dysfunctional, but if most campaigns presidential campaigns because of 50 states are going to be dysfunctional in some way
0: uh, you know i'm not sure that that's true i mean look all of these things are somewhat familiar in terms of people stabbing each other in the back being a little right. passive aggressive yeah. whatever but uh, i do think that there's something that you see on winning campaigns that is a sense of unity forged by success and people you know taking their their own personal interests and in making them secondary to the goal of electing a candidate some of that is symptomatic rather than causal, but some of it is also causal. and and so it can be difficult to disaggregate those things. But I think the morale of the folks who are working on this campaign, I think the their ability to function together, I think their ability to or inability to bring up problems with the candidate, I think those all tied into putting her in a position to lose. And look, uh, you know, the argument that Amy and I make all the time is, You can look at Russia, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, you can look at Russia, you can look at WikiLeaks, you can look at a million different variables that could have changed and she would have been president. The question is, why was she so at the margin that any of those things could have made Donald Trump the president after the campaign that he ran? And that, of course,
1: is the crux of what we're all doing in this postmortem, including the Democratic Party. One area you, you do not go into but those of us in the West Coast far away from Washington speak saw was social media and the effect of fake sites, the effect of everything ranging from you know, confirmation bias sites like Occupy Democrats to what we didn't see here in Berkeley, which was Breitbart and Pizzagate. Uh, There's very little mention of it in Shattered. Is there very little mention because the Clinton campaign was simply unaware or unable to deal
0: with it? No, they were aware. I mean, they, they actually uh, put out feelers to some of the major tech companies to ask them to, to control fake news and were rebuffed. So this was something they were aware of. I think had Hillary Clinton been elected president, I think it would have been a high priority for her to try to figure out how to address this as a, as a sort of issue in our public policy and our political debates. Uh, obviously, you know, you don't want government censorship of, of anything, but at the same time, there may be you know it's it's an issue worth exploring at the very least not government censorship but the issue of fake news is something that's worth exploring it is incredibly difficult to try to quantify how many votes somebody won or lost based on fake news i mean first of all it's hard to quantify or qualify what is fake news right where your threshold is for that and then how many articles did somebody see and what you know what effect did it have on that person versus 10,000 other people so Was it a factor? Perhaps, but it's very hard to measure.
1: I understand that, but there's no place in the book that I can recall where Robbie Mook says, what about social media? In other words, what effect it might have had, we don't know. We do know it had an effect, but the question is, it's not really in this book. And what I'm asking is, is it not in this book because... It was not something they were particularly focused on
0: at all. They were aware of it. They made an effort, as I said, to to talk to, to some of the tech s- to, to some of the companies and ask them to 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 deal with it. The tech companies didn't do anything. That's the that's what I've been told. I guess the sort of the the way to the way that Amy and I looked at it in terms of dealing with the book was that the bigger social me- media issue in this campaign was Donald Trump's unique use of social media to help his campaign. To drive news coverage, to get you know what we call earned media, right—the free media that you get from doing that—we've seen a news industry that has, you know, we used to think that the news industry was on deadline all the time and writing stories as fast as possible. Now they're chasing every tweet, and it's hard to figure out how they get out of that uh, because they've been doing it for so long now. And and now, as president of the United States, if Donald Trump had the ability to drive a news cycle as a candidate with a tweet, you know, his ability to do that as president of the United States is magnified.
1: False equivalence in the media played a huge role, particularly in terms of how Clinton got burned, it seems. Uh, I'm sure the candidates were aware of it. As you writing this, how aware were you of this, and what were your thoughts?
0: It's interesting. I, uh, I wrote a piece for Vox. I worked there at one point. Um, and uh, I wrote a piece about the the Clinton rules how reporters re- report on Hillary Clinton and sort of the, some of the distortions that happen and why they happen. Look, I, I think the, the most simple answer is the right one here for a lot of things, which is I think they expected her to be president of the United States and they held her feet to the fire. I think they didn't expect a President Trump to exist and maybe held his feet less to the fire. I, I mean, to the extent that there was a, a skew. Now, look, if you talk to people on on the right they will tell you they think that the media was in the tank for Hillary Clinton. They kept talking about how she was going to win, and that has an echo effect. Voters start to believe what they're hearing in the media, and voters want to vote for a winner. So, I mean, there are different distortions on each side, and I, I think there's some legitimacy to what the right says about that. Uh, look, my expectation was that she was going to win on Election Day, and I you know, I don't think it's unreasonable for reporters to hold, to hold candidates as accountable as they can. I think they didn't do that or were unsuccessful – a lot of the time in their attempts with Donald Trump, he proved a, a pretty difficult foil in that way.
1: There was always in the background the idea of the mafia and Donald Trump that never really hit the news at all. It still hasn't. I mean, it's it's around the edges still.
0: Right, a developer in New York in the 1980s
1: <laughs> and and Jersey, you know, in Atlantic City. Come on, right? I don't have anything on that.
0: So uh, and if I did, I might not want to talk about, it.
1: <laughs> but I don't. Jonathan Allen, a few other areas that you discuss, it appeared that the only person in the campaign who really got that there was a problem with white voters who might have voted for Obama last time was Bill Clinton, and he couldn't influence his wife to do
0: anything about it.
1: Is that a pretty fair assessment?
0: That's about right. In 2008, he was sort of off the chain a little bit or off the leash a little bit and did some things that hurt Secretary Clinton or then Senator Clinton in her primary against Barack Obama. Then in 2012, the Obama people figured out how to use him, which was go have him make a speech in public, no off-the-cuff remarks to reporters, no freelancing, but like use him as, as somebody who can be a translator for Barack Obama to, to some audiences that, that Obama's not as good with or, or could use a hand with. We all remember the 2012 Democratic Convention. Bill Clinton's speech there was a, a pretty amazing takedown of the Romney Ryan budget plan. And, you know, we talked about how the Republicans didn't get arithmetic, which I thought was a, a nice way of putting his thoughts there because he used the, the longer word arithmetic instead of the shorter word math to, like, to really feel kind of homey. So in 2016, He really didn't want to take the blame for his wife's loss, and he didn't want to be overbearing, but he fought with Robbie Mook, the campaign manager, pushed back and forth on this question of whether or not uh, she should spend a lot of time trying to persuade people who didn't agree with her. Mook worked with data analytics, basically slicing and dicing the electorate. He believed pretty strongly that it was more efficient, and it is, more efficient to try to get people who agree with you to turn out than it is to try to get people who aren't with you, with you, and then try to get them out. So he pretty much abandoned a lot of the traditional persuasion efforts, and he kept putting the candidate and her surrogates in places where there were already Democrats to turn them out. Bill Clinton kept saying, send me out into the rural areas, send me out into the suburban areas. He got rebuffed.
1: Well, she could all also have made more of an effort toward getting Bernie people to vote for her, and she didn't. And it's still pissed off at her.
0: I mean, her choice of a vice presidential running mate, I think, will always confound the left and make them think she is who they think, <laughs> thought she was. We have a story in the book about how she was talking to an aide and, and basically said, you know, uh, I'm not happy with my list of vice presidential picks. And the upshot of that is that Elizabeth Warren made sort of a late run up the short list list. Uh, and had a real opportunity potentially to get on the ticket. And there were a couple of reasons that she didn't, mostly that Clinton didn't feel like they had enough of a transactional history as the way that it was described to me and Amy. You know? But there were also concerns about putting two women on a ticket. And ultimately, Clinton went with what she thought was the safe pick and somebody she could govern with. I think a lot of Democrats would prefer if she had made the analysis that uh, she picked the candidate she was most likely to win with and worry about governing later. But what about someone like Al Franken? Was he even in the picture? I didn't hear a lot about Al Franken. The other person who would be in the sort of Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren mold uh, was Sherrod Brown, the Ohio senator. And we
1: know why he didn't, because Kasich would have appointed a Republican.
0: Right. So the, the choice there was to make sure that they didn't lose the Senate seat. Who knows? Maybe Maybe she wins the presidency with Sherrod Brown on the ticket. Maybe she doesn't. But It seems like the priority was to make sure that they didn't have that problem because they thought they were going to win.
1: Well, of course, if it had been Franken, he could have, being a media person, would have been the one to have taken the Trump role right at Trump. And it seemed to make sense. I mean, he's not
0: a radical. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think Franken would have been, as you point out, he has the ability to to play the entertainer when he wants to, and certainly understands New York and probably gets, you know, as somebody who's done sketch comedy, he's probably good at figuring out how to portray exactly. Trump the way that he wants to. You know, we didn't hear a lot about Al Franken as a, as a potential candidate. For for what reason, I'm not entirely sure, but uh, he, he didn't really surface.
1: March or April of 2016, I had a chance to interview Anna Quindlin, a novelist who's also a good friend of Hillary Clinton's. And... You know, she didn't want to insult any of the Bernie people out here on the West Coast. She said that, of course, the Clinton campaign, we respect the Bernie people, uh, Sanders supporters, but we understand they're just idealistic young people. And I felt bad. I didn't say to her, you know, if you think that's what this is about, she's going to lose. And I didn't say that. And I'm just curious. Was that just Quinlan talking or was that coming more from Hillary Clinton?
0: I think that like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton saw Bernie Sanders as somebody who was offering things that he couldn't deliver. In the case of Bernie Sanders, I think she thought he was offering things he shouldn't deliver, you know, which is different than President Obama. Um, and, and, you know, I think President Obama, and we report in the book, doesn't really like it when he's compared to Bernie Sanders. Right. I think he appreciated Sanders' ability to light the grassroots up, but uh, but didn't like the comparisons because he also looked at, at Sanders in the same way. There is a condescension to that, right, that, that, that your political ideas are somehow less because they're not the mainstream right now or they're not what is driving the government as it stands. I think that was a, a, a problem for Hillary Clinton in communicating to Sanders voters. And I think it would have been, had she won the, the primary in 2008, she would have had a similar problem with the Obama voters, that th- that there was a feeling of condescension about the reality of the things that they want to see from their government. Uh, and and by the way, she's on the same side on most of these issues as as the Sanders people. It's a matter of degree.
1: Well, what, what I found interesting in talking to Quinlan and in talking to Uh, My nephew works at Politico and his wife, who's a congressional aide, you know, coming at me in Washington last year at Passover, telling me for the California primary, you need to vote for Clinton. I'm going, but wait a second. I like Sanders' platform better. And they're going, so do we. And I'm thinking every Clinton person I talked to liked Sanders' program better, but they thought she'd, quote, be more effective.
0: Well, first of all, she won the primary and won it. Pretty significantly, in the, in the interviews that I've done, uh, you know, for the book and elsewhere, I think there are a lot of people who did like the pragmatic approach, who did think that she was going to be able to deliver better. And I, you know, she ran up the score with African American voters. She ran up the score with African American women in particular. They were her strongest base in both the primary and the general election. I don't think they looked at Bernie Sanders' platform and said to themselves. Uh, this is something that I can get behind uh, in the same way, not because they disagreed with him in theory, as you suggest, necessarily, but because they felt like some of the things that he was saying were, were unrealistic. And there are definitely more centrist Democrats who actually liked her platform better.
1: Uh, yeah, I didn't run into those. I ran into more into people who supported her because even though they liked his program better, she was – I mean a uh, congressional aide is telling me Sanders was not a great senator.
0: I mean, this is where you run into at the Freedom satyrs. Of
1: course, he was a better speaker, and one of the things the campaign overlooked, and you go
0: into this in the first
1: paragraph, is the fact that she had no real reason to run other than
0: it's my turn I want to run. One of her senior aides said to me and Amy as we were reporting the book, I would have had a reason to run or I wouldn't have run. Uh, and they had that problem the entire campaign. She didn't have one big idea or a small set of ideas that, that were a big promise for the American public. Donald Trump, I can tell you what, uh, in, in a few words, what he was promising: nationalism, nationalism, nationalism. Whether you like it or not, uh, it was very clear what his message was. I think Bernie Sanders, redistribution of wealth and power. And by the way, that's what government is: it is redistribution of wealth and power. But you could fit pretty much everything into his buck, into the bucket. I think of here's somebody who believes that the rest of us ought to have more of what the rich and powerful have and the rich and powerful perhaps less Everything else ties into it, the rigged games, the college loan debts that people run up. Uh, you think about every issue that he talks about, that talk about the health care, Medicare for all versus the system we have now. So all of their platform issues could be brought in under like a pretty easy umbrella to understand. For her, there were a thousand different things she was for and nobody could tell you exactly. Maybe she thinks that she could, but I think the, the vast majority of the public or a lot of the public was unable to discern what's that one big thing she's promising me. What's that one big idea that you can fit everything in, into?
1: On top of that, the other idea uh, that you discussed and shattered, and I saw something today, in fact, questions that people asked voters about what these candidates would do, and there were like four questions, and the one that he came on top was, change Washington. It was a change election. Was there any point where suddenly anybody who was at the top of the campaign said, wait a second, this is a change election, what are we doing?
0: other than Bill. It's kind of unbelievable that she lost to Barack Obama in 2008 by being the candidate of the status quo in a change election with some populist feeling to it, maybe not like what we're seeing now. Uh, And then again in 2016, ends up in the exact same position. Now, you can argue that it's impossible for her to be anything but the insider, but she didn't really try. We talk about this a little bit in the book. There was not, for example, a political reform agenda from Hillary Clinton. Maybe she thought it took too much chutzpah to do that, having been an insider. But if somebody's calling you crooked, one thing you can do as a candidate is point to your reform agenda and say, here are the things that I am promising to do. Here's what I'm going to do to limit myself. Here's what I'm going to do to limit other people. Nowhere. It just, it didn't exist. She refused to do it. People advised her to do it. So it's amazing to me that she got back into this place where she didn't seem to be offering change or to the extent she was offering change outside of you know, the very obvious gender change. To the extent she was offering change, it seemed very muted compared to what Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary and Donald Trump in the general election were offering.
1: Matt Tybee in Rolling Stone, uh, in reviewing your book, made the comment that it seemed that this is from all of Washington, that Washington perceives the American public as puppets to be
0: manipulated. Is that true? I don't know that I would go as far as Matt in that direction, but I do think that there's obviously a detachment between the political class and, and a lot of the rest of the country. It stems from a lot of things, but I think one of them is that we have candidates who, who largely are running toward bases that most of the people don't vote. That you, as a candidate for office, you are often, say you're in a Republican district and it's 60% Republican, you're catering to only to that 60%. You're forgetting about the other 40%. Maybe not all of them, but you know they get to the place where they're really in echo chambers, just like the rest of us who watch uh, MSNBC or Fox News or listen to Bill Press or Hugh Hewitt. You know, There's, there's just a, um, a real polarization of our country, and I think that's both caused by and uh, exacerbates this detachment uh, of the, the Washington political class and the rest of the country. And Look, I'm a native of Washington, and I think that the political class in Washington is detached from the rest of the country. <laughs> she
1: came out weekly against TPP, Trans-Pacific. And you mentioned the economic effects of trade. Out here, maybe I'm wrong, but out here most of the opposition was the fact that it wasn't really a trade pact. And I'm assuming that when you wrote that, this was the general feeling in Washington, which means they missed it.
0: Well, I think from Hillary Clinton's perspective, as explained by people around her, to me, the positive of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the reason that you want that is a national security piece, that basically what you're trying to do is get other Asian countries that are otherwise in China's sphere of influence to be involved in economic engagement with the United States, and that as a result of that, the United States will gain security and gain more of a foothold in Asia and do so without military power, that you're using an economic tool to create national security space. Uh, I know there are people out here who look at it as an intellectual property deal. That's right. First and foremost. If you are in Michigan, you look at it as a deal that's going to send jobs overseas and lower workers' wages, wages in the United States. What was fascinating about her, and this is to her detriment and to her credit, she was ambivalent about this deal. She worked to get it put into place as Barack Obama's Secretary of State. It was her job. I think she did her best to get it to where she could get it to. And at the same time, she understood that there were a lot of people who were worried that jobs were going to go away, the intellectual property issues. I mean, there are a variety of things that have been brought up about this. As it was explained to, to me and Amy, she went round and round with her aides on this and finally got to a place where she decided she was going to be against it in terms of her, her policy. And then she wimped out. And then she sort of wimped out. We sort of described this in the book where she goes out in Michigan in the primary against Bernie Sanders, and there is only one issue that matters to working class whites in Michigan, trade, 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 right? And in specific, the trade Trans-Pacific Partnership. She wanted to talk about all kinds of economic issues. She wanted to talk about the Flint water crisis. None of these things were, were what the, the primary or the general election were going to turn on. So she goes out to say that she's against trade and what she actually does and against the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And what she actually ends up saying is not here's why I'm against it so much as here's what it would have to do for me to support it. So if you're a voter and you're listening for burn down this trade pact, you didn't get that from Hillary Clinton. (laughs) What about George Lakoff's idea
1: that the Democratic Party is completely missed out on understanding exactly
0: why voters vote? (laughs) Well, look, I mean, Barack Obama was president for eight years. Uh, It hasn't been so long since Bill Clinton was president for eight years. Democrats took control of uh, each of the chambers of Congress. But couldn't hold it. I mean, I don't know that you're ever going to have this, like, sort of 40-year run that the Democrats had in Congress from, you know, 1954 to 1994 again, uh, anytime soon, at least in the House of Representatives. I think things swing back and forth a little bit, and the Democrats will eventually find some turf that the Republicans have left open and take advantage of it.
1: What his comment was is that the Republicans have figured out that people don't vote on the basis of what's good for them. They vote on the basis of what they think their values are. And the Democrats just say, well, this will be good for you. This will be good for you. This will be good for you. That's not how people vote. That's
0: his comment. That's interesting. I mean, I I think that the Democrats actually ran a campaign this time that was very much aimed toward people's values, or at least what the Democratic Party thought were people's values. How much time did Hillary Clinton spend talking about groups that were targeted by Donald Trump and his campaign? I think in some ways, in some ways, I might argue the opposite, that in fact, it was too much sometimes for Hillary Clinton about Uh, how do I defend this group or that group or that group, as opposed to how do I translate a policy that is going to create a better economic situation? for You can argue these things all day, though. At some level, they're esoteric in terms of it's impossible to exactly measure why voters vote. And they often don't know. And they often hold mutually conflicting ideas in their head. I think it was Dennis Kucinich once said to me, you know, uh, a voter could come up to you and tell you how much they respect you for not wearing an American flag pin or for uh, you know, or for standing up against flag burning and then vote against you because they hate you for doing it. You know, the, the, the voters are sometimes, again, hold mutually exclusive ideas in their head. When we come down to it, Jonathan
1: Allen, at the end of the election, five days or whatever it was, I forgot how many days it was prior to the election, along came the Comey letter. And Hillary Clinton has now said, without the Comey letter, I would have won, Comey himself said, "Oh gee, it makes me kind of nauseous to think that might be
0: what's going on. Without the Comey letter, would she be president?" I certainly think it's possible. It didn't help her that it came out. It didn't help her that people were reminded of it a couple right before the election when he said that there was nothing to it. There're sort of two things that I think are important in considering that. Number 1, without the email server on which classified information lived there wouldn't have been an FBI investigation in the first place so I think it's it's hard to look at that whole situation and not she, she left her fate in the hands of the FBI right even if it was just carelessness or even if it was you know even if there was no malice there the fact that there was classified information outside the classified system begs for an FBI investigation it's impossible for the FBI director not to do that now Jim Comey did a bunch of weird stuff starting when he said he wasn't going to Come after her, wasn't going to prosecute her, and then decided to condemn her in no uncertain terms, and basically read an indictment while he was saying they weren't going to seek an indictment against her. That was weird. Coming back and reopening the investigation, which he explained before Congress in a, a, you know, sort of his rationale for that. Once he had gone to Congress and said that the investigation was closed, I he's probably right that he needed to let them know that it was reopened. He could reopen. have waited two weeks. He could have waited two weeks, but he's he's right that that would be second-guessed if but, it came out.
1: But at the same time, and it has been second-guessed, they were also investigating Trump's Russian connections. And didn't say anything about he it. He said nothing about it.
0: Right. and then, uh, But I, if I'm not mistaken, there was uh, some inclination on his part to do so, and, and there was pushback within the administration. Um all of these things are so strange. You have two two presidential candidates under live FBI investigation, or at least their campaigns, right. or them in one way or another. I, I don't remember that ever happening. And <laughs> if it did, it was kept quiet because the people at the FBI didn't think that was something that ought to be talked about. One other just sort of thought on that is had Loretta Lynch and Bill Clinton not met on the tarmac – you know, right around the time that this is being decided, Loretta Lynch doesn't end up recusing herself, and Jim Comey doesn't have the opportunity to sort of jump into the breach and into the spotlight uh, and seize his moment to be like the important independent, just-the-facts FBI guy that, that he wanted to portray himself as. So there were a lot of weird missteps here, and, and to just look at it from October 28th on, you know, look, I think people will want to do that. I, I understand why Hillary Clinton wants to do that. It's not the complete picture. In comparing
1: Clinton to Trump, and I don't, I, I have a few other questions about since then, but in comparing Clinton to Trump, Trump had almost like a book of things you could hit him up with. If this material didn't exist, would the media, in terms of trying to find a way to create a horse race? to create something, would they have found something else on Hillary that we don't know about or might have just been in the background?
0: Certainly her attitude has always been, if they're not, you know, I'll go ahead and do the thing I want to do because they're going to hit me on something else. That doesn't mean that everything that you would be hit on would have the same value. Republicans conducted hearings into Benghazi for several years with almost the express purpose of hurting her presidential ambitions. And in fact, the House Majority Leader at one point said that was the intention would it have been something yes it would have been something but i think there are things that she did that are more damaging than others and the republicans were smart to play to pre-existing narratives about her particularly her level of honesty and her her willingness to hide things and then you've got bernie sanders you know essentially acting as an echo effect on trump in terms of the idea of corruption so by the time you get to a general election. There's Hillary Clinton saying I'm honest and trustworthy, the public doesn't believe it, and both you know Sanders in the primary and Trump in the general election have said, no, no, she's not honest, she's she's crooked and you can't believe her. That's a hard thing to overcome.
1: Question that I've been asked when I said I was going to talk to you, it appears in your book shattered, it appears only at the time of the convention, and that's the relationship of the uh, Democratic National Committee. To Hillary and the Bernie Sanders campaign. And it's not mentioned prior to that within the campaign. So I'm just curious, what kind of connection was there? And is the left paranoid about the DNC? Or were they right in their criticisms of uh, Wasserman Schultz?
0: Uh, so let me first, as a point of disclosure, note that I worked for Debbie Wasserman Schultz for 40 days once uh, as her PAC director. So I uh, People can throw tomatoes at me uh, through the radio if they want. I think the way that we tried to look at it for this was, number one, it was not an impediment to Hillary Clinton winning the nomination or becoming president. So in looking at a book that talks about the reasons that she lost, that's one issue. However,
1: uh, but wait a second, but I'm going to go back.
0: I'm just saying, I think that's one factor. I think that the entire Democratic establishment had moved toward Hillary Clinton for a variety of reasons, including fear of retribution from her. In 2008, she kept a, a hit list of enemies that we wrote about in our first book. She rated all the Democratic members on a scale of one to seven, uh, the sevens being the most disloyal. Her husband went out and you know, helped primary opponents against those Democrats in the future. So there was kind of a chilling effect there. I think Barack Obama, even though he didn't publicly say anything, I don't think there was any confusion in the Democratic Party that she was the one he wanted. He did not support Joe Biden, who he had twice told the American public was the next best president, you know that in and of itself—that he wasn't out there saying he wanted Biden—was a pretty clear, clear indication that he wanted Clinton. So it's interesting to me that the Democratic Party itself, that the Democratic Party is an institution, the DNC, ends up being the focal point for what is, I think, actually a more broad uh, and complete movement of the Democratic establishment beyond the DNC, which is actually kind of a small outfit. In the certainly in the Obama era and in the era of uh, big outside spending and less party party control, it was the entirety of the Democratic establishment that went for Hillary Clinton. It would have been next to impossible, been next to impossible under the rules that the Democrats have for a candidate to beat somebody who had such institutional support, not from the DNC per se, but from the larger set. Now the DNC plays into that. Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, endorsed Hillary Clinton in the 2008 primary. Debbie Wasserman Schultz feels loyal to Hillary Clinton. I think there were times at which it it actually was harmful to both Debbie Wasserman Schultz and Hillary Clinton that they were perceived as so close. All of that said, I don't think that anything that DNC did as a party institution prevented Bernie Sanders from winning the nomination nearly so much as the broader set of official Democrats being in in Hillary Clinton's camp.
1: And at the same time, that connection proved deadly during the general election because so many Sanders people either didn't vote or didn't vote for her. They were totally turned off.
0: I mean, and and that doesn't mean everybody who was a Sanders voter was turned off. Oh, no. Or or didn't vote or voted for somebody else. A lot of people voted for Hillary Clinton. Some of them wanted to. Some of them held their noses. And she wasn't able to get a lot of folks. There's this uh, great scene in the book. In late September, uh, sometime in September of 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton's team says to Bernie's team, like, we would love to get him to cut an ad. They know they're having trouble with some of the younger voters, some of the Bernie, even some of the not younger millennial voters who are Bernie people. They're having trouble getting them energized, right? So they want Bernie to, to cut an ad, and uh, his consultant, Tad Devine, flies up to Vermont to cut this ad with him. And at the very end of the – so Bernie's sitting in his living room, and he's going through you know, line by line. He's, he's pretty much okay with it. He's making some tweaks here and there. And he gets to the last line, and it says, I'm with her. And he he looks at it, and he says, I'm not saying that. That's so phony. Uh, And he refuses to say her tagline, I'm with her. The Sanders people ship it off to the Clinton people. The Clinton people show it to some focus groups. The focus groups feel like Bernie doesn't really believe what he's saying. And ultimately, the, the Clinton people decide not to run the ad because they were getting backlash from the focus groups. There are some people who believe that they should have run it anyway, uh, that the force of Bernie saying something would have been would have been powerful even if some people didn't didn't like it.
1: The focus groups really matter that much? I mean, I've been in focus groups and they're guided by the stronger people in the focus
0: groups. I think that they are completely over relied upon for messaging. I mean, if it's do you like brand A or brand B better? I you know, I guess there's some value to that, but I think you're absolutely right. They they are Influenced by the fact that they are the people who agreed to be in a focus group, among other things. No offense, since you just said you've been in focus groups. Well, I I was in fo- a couple of focus groups just to
1: get something free. <laughs> That's but, how I spent my college days. You know, but the point, of course, is that the analytics that they were using throughout were not that great. You make the uh, analogy to Moneyball. Moneyball is about finding the best bang for your buck. That's all it's right. about.
0: Right. It's about efficiency, which is what... Robbie was using the Robbie Mook, the campaign manager, was using data analytics for. What is the most efficient way to turn out voters, or what is the most efficient way to win the election? The answer to him was to turn out voters who agree with you. That was, a lot of people around him would argue, was myopic. Much like I would argue, you can make the Oakland A's a second place team uh, with the with the lowest or second lowest budget in the league by using uh, sabermetrics, but you're probably not going to make them the first place team unless you go out and get slugger, you go out and get a couple pitchers. Jonathan Allen, okay, here we are a
1: few months into the, as John Oliver says, it's hard to even say it, the the Trump administration. Have people stopped predicting because they just
0: simply don't know what's coming? Yeah, and that's probably a good thing. Uh, It's certainly a good thing for journalists. Stop predicting. Start reporting. (laughs) You will find uh, if you do journalism right that when you don't predict and you just report, uh, you you end up making everybody happy, <laughs> and certainly a lot happier than when you pr- predict. And there's not really a lot of reward for predicting correctly. So, and there's a lot of risk to predicting incorrectly. So there's it's not worth it. I, I, but this ties into to what we do with the book in that um, you know we. Both my co-author and I thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. On election night, we thought she was going to win. I think th- the entirety of the t- campaign, we expected that she was likely to win. I, th- I always said to people, I think there's, you know, she's got a 40... F- at the beginning of the campaign, I said, she's got a 45% chance of being the next president. Everybody else has a smaller chance of being the next president. But I didn't, you know, this is during the primaries on both right, sides. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it's still possible she won't. But we decided that we were just going to report all the stories that we could from behind the scenes. And... Not foreshadow what was going to happen in the general election. And as a result, we have a book that I think, when you read it, propels you through the story as though you're reliving it.
1: Did you not go back and put the gun in the handbag?
0: I mean, look, we fleshed out some of the stories. We obviously got more reporting about what had happened before Election Day. But we've been working on this thing since late 2014. Some of the stories in here are from. You know, early 2015, well, and we're pretty, pretty well fleshed out to begin with.
1: Well, there's a lot of foreshadowing, and I'm just curious if you if you went back and kind of
0: pumped up the foreshadowing a little uh, bit. Uh, look, it, are there some places where where you have a little bit more of a feel because we talk yeah. to more people uh, after the election about a certain moment? Than the, yeah, absolutely. But what we didn't have to do is go back and tear things up. Because we didn't write it with the expectation in the first place that she was going to win. So is there some of that layered in? Possibly. I'd have to, <laughs> have to go line by line again. But I do know that we didn't have to tear stuff up. And that was important. And I think it's important to a reader being able to experience it, this as a, as a campaign or as somebody who watched the campaign before experienced it the first time without really knowing from moment to moment what the next step is going to be or is it going to be an up or a down.
1: One final question. In the end, maybe I misunderstood this. The big difference was the fact that there's about 4% of Trump voters who nobody anticipated. Well, Bill Clinton and a few people did anticipate adding 4% to Trump's numbers no matter what, because these are people who generally don't vote who came out for Trump. So I'm going to ask you this question because curious. Is it possible they don't exist and the election was rigged?
0: I have no evidence to suggest that. I don't believe that the election was rigged.
1: Okay, and that would include hacking, uh, voting machines, say Pennsylvania.
0: I've I've seen zero evidence of it. I'm sure, I am confident that the uh, that the U.S. intelligence agencies had not seen evidence of that. I think that's something that we would we would know about by now. Between President Obama having been president for the last few months of uh, you know before the Trump presidency and uh, oversight being done by by Congress at this point, it's always possible something like that was done without detection. But you saw across the country, and this is to, this is to me why I think that even though there were small margins in some of those states, uh, you saw ac- across the country the same dynamic, which is there were a lot of a lot of counties across the country that voted for Barack Obama that went for Donald Trump, and it wasn't just in states that moved from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. You saw this pattern across play out in a similar way across the country in counties that bear relation to each other demographically. So it was a really elaborate scheme <laughs> if somebody did that. So no, I don't believe that and don't have any evidence of it.
1: Final question. Jonathan Allen, uh, what are you working on now?
0: <laughs> um, I am trying to figure out uh, what the next book might look like, um, if there is a next book. Uh, you know, we're two weeks after having released this. We've done... Two Hillary Clinton books in a row. I think that my co-author and I would—it uh, would be refreshing to move on to another subject. Yeah, I don't—I ha- don't have a great answer. Just—just just trying to report. So I write a column for Roll Call on Capitol Hill, and I work for Sidewire, which is a, a startup company that is a text chat platform for experts. So basically, I interview people all day.
1: To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, BookWaves.com. Or find the Book Waves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.